0: The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week,
2: our attention turns to science policy. In Britain... For the first time in many, many years, some would say generations, all politicians agree that science, engineering, technology needs to have a larger place in our economy, which also means a larger place in our culture. And in France...
3: We decided to give autonomy to the 85 French universities, because giving them autonomy, we enabled them to build their own strategy, strategy for research and strategy for training. And it's a big success.
0: And we'll also be hearing about the people who lived in India more than a million years ago.
4: Ever wonder what life was like in prehistoric India? A paper published in the latest issue of Science shows that early humans used large stone-cutting tools in India more than a million years ago. The findings provide the first evidence that humans were living on the Indian continent much earlier than previously thought.
0: I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, chief executive of Britain's Science Council, is with me. And so is the Labour MP for Newcastle Central, Chi Onwura, who was elected to Parliament for the first time last May, and she's already her party's Shadow Minister for Science and Innovation. This part of Southwark is quite familiar ground to you because your last job before joining the House of Commons was over the road from the FT as a senior regulator at Ofcom. Before we get into specific science policy questions. I'd be interested to know why you wanted to swap that life for politics.
2: I've been interested in science and engineering since I was about seven or eight. I wanted to be an engineer and I was also interested in politics from a very young age. My mother was a the Labour Party activist. I see a real connection between the two. Engineers make the world a better place through science and technology, and politicians try to make the world a better place through political policy. So when the MP for Newcastle, my hometown, announced that he was going to step down, I knew it was a chance to move from something I loved doing, engineering, to something I uh, really wanted to do as well politics.
0: And how have you found it being an MP and then a shadow minister?
2: It is very very different from being an engineer. It's much more varied and in a way you have uh, 65,000 bosses um, all your constituents and then becoming a shadow minister was a huge change in terms of taking responsibility for speaking on innovation and science for our party.
0: And which of the science policy issues, innovation issues has really caught your imagination?
2: I think the really big overarching one, I'd say, is something I've been thinking about long before I became a politician, which is the role of science in society. And it's a really important time for that now because for the first time in many, many years, some would say generations, you know, people are talking, all politicians agree that science, engineering, technology needs to have a larger place in our economy, which also means a larger place in our culture. And so that's the big issue. And from that, everything else comes about such as science funding, such as higher education, such as how we inspire young kids to come into science and engineering, and such as the role of academics and scientists in champion our area. So uh, that's the big issue for me.
0: As I think you've indicated, science policy is not as politicised in the party political way as many others, is it? Do you think there's a consensus? I mean, how much do you agree with... Your counterpart in government, David Willits, for example.
2: I think on science policy, there is a consensus around the importance of science. And there's also a consensus around the need to rebalance the economy towards advanced manufacturing, which is basically around science and technology and innovation. But where there's a real huge ideological difference, and this really does impact our actual policy, is the role of government. Because I would say that, that David Willett, who I admire a lot, doesn't believe that government has a real role to play either in supporting the innovation environment or in championing science, whereas I and my colleagues on the Labour benches... We believe that there's a role for government in that.
1: I'm interested you should say that because quite a lot of the budget announcements were about how science and innovation might support SMEs to move into advanced manufacturing more effectively. And that is one of the areas, I think, where direct grants from government is an intervention that should be welcomed and
2: encouraged. The announcements in the budget, there was one announcement which I really welcome, which was something that we, want, we were planning to do, which is to increase the R&D tax credit for small firms. When it comes to investment grants, the government has abolished the, the grant for business investment and it has reduced manufacturing uh, capital allowances. So, tax cuts, if you like, are the very basic government intervention, and we see that that's what they're doing in, uh, they're proposing in enterprise zones, etc. But if you really want to support science and technology into commercialization, you need to support small businesses as they go into commercialization, as they go into mass marketing their, their products.
1: One of the things that everybody identifies is the need for universities to play a very strong role in drawing out the steps towards advanced manufacturing from small businesses. What are the sorts of things that you'd like to see introduced in that area as universities as a key partner?
2: We've hit on one of the things that you absolutely need to get right, and I don't think we've got it quite right, though we've tried very hard, which is the interplay between universities and business. Academics and universities aren't necessarily interested in becoming business people, but business can really thrive and grow on the back of academic ideas. So what I would like to see is much more business hubs where academics and scientists and business people can come together. And the technology innovation centres are potentially a good step towards that. It was, you know, part of a report that came out of the Labour government. But I am concerned that small businesses may have to pay to access that kind of technology support and academic research. And so I don't think the government's got that right yet.
0: Another aspect of government policy that I'd like to ask you about, they're less interested than previous governments in regional policy. And it's interesting, if you take the £100 million, the new capital grants that they announced in the budget towards campuses, innovation campuses, 90 million of those were in East Anglia and the South East. Does that concern you?
2: It concerns me on two levels. And I do think one of my roles is to hold up this government to account. And that 100 million is an excellent example of message management. in as much as they took 1.4 billion away from science capital funding in the capital spending review back in November, and now they give 100 million back, which I'm very pleased about. But it is the case that that 100 million is going almost entirely into the southeast, And I think it's true it's entirely... Into Conservative and Liberal Dem constituencies. I represent Newcastle upon Tyne Central. It's a city that is in a great industrial uh, region with a huge history in science and technology and great universities. And I do think we need a regional policy which recognises and supports the roles of our regions.
1: I mean, not least because, of course, if you don't have the investment in the businesses in the region, you cannot skill up those regions. And a very important part of actually increasing young people's attainment and ambition Mm -hmm. is to have those industries there. So regional policy, I would agree with you, needs to be a very important part of the investment in the skills base.
2: I think that's absolutely right, and I know, because I want to inspire young people into science and engineering, I know how hard it is to do that when there isn't examples of great science and engineering um, in the area. Fortunately, we do have many small innovative companies now, partially as a result of the policies of the last government and particularly on regional investment. And just to say this, in yesterday's budget debate on investment and regional policy Pickles, uh, the Secretary of State for local governments he said that the Labour Party had failed because there hadn't been as much of an increase in private sector jobs in the regions as we would have wanted there to be and that's true but that was partially because a lot of our increase in jobs came from financial services and we don't have those financial services in the regions and what we need to do now is to recognise that growing financial services in the region should not be a government policy objective. Growing advanced manufacturing and industry should, and that needs special regional focus to achieve that.
0: It's time now to move across the channel. Earlier this month, on a visit to Paris, I interviewed Valérie Pécresse, who's been France's Minister for Science and Higher Education for four years. I asked her to outline the French government's ambitious reform programme for research and universities.
3: First, we decided to give autonomy to the 85 French universities. Because giving them autonomy, we enabled them to build their own strategy, strategy for research and strategy for training. And it's a big success. After several demonstrations in the streets... Now we have 90% of the universities that are already autonomous. And it provided us with new trainings, new labs, new projects for research. We are very proud of these new autonomous universities.
0: Autonomous means that they make their own decisions rather than just taking instructions from the ministry. Is that right?
3: Yes, that's right. But they also sign a contract with the state which gives them their objectives, because it's a civil service. But these objectives we discuss, these targets we discuss together, and they're responsible also for attaining these targets.
0: And the second part of your strategy is consolidation, or reversing the fragmentation of French universities that happened in the late 60s and early 70s. Is that right?
3: Yes, there is an opposition from history between uh, French universities and French grandes écoles, as we call them, that were created by Napoleon and then by the General de Gaulle to train executives for private firms. And now we want uh, the universities to work with the grandes écoles and to build federal universities that will be well-known, that have a brand name known abroad, because we are in a world competition for knowledge and we have to have big pluridisciplinary universities known from abroad.
0: So French universities in 10, 20 years' time will be up there in the top 10, top 20 of the world university rankings.
3: We want Our universities to be the main actors of our training and research system. This was not the case before. We had big research institutions and grandes écoles that uh, were doing some of the best trainings and some of the best research. And now we want universities to be at the core of our research system because the rankings you are talking about, the rankings are ranking universities. This is the world model. So we have to put the universities now autonomous and maybe uh, within 10 years federal. We want to put these universities at the heart of our research system.
0: And how are you funding these reforms?
3: The big change was that for the first time we did a big reform of universities with the money. And that was a great change, of course. We gave them uh, €5 billion to rebuild new campuses, For the students, we gave them 1.8 billion to have new budgets in order to create new trainings, to create uh, new research labs. And now we are giving them 22 billion euros on competitive call for projects in a special plan that is uh, called uh, investment for the future.
0: Diana, what chance do you think she and the French government has of resurrecting the reputation of French universities, which I would agree with her is pretty low on a world scale.
1: It's low on a world scale for the research, although they are popular places for undergraduates to go. In terms of the research, yes, it's a long time coming, isn't it, bringing their various strands of higher academic learning together.
0: Gee, do you think we can learn anything from France? Or are the local conditions there, the history which she refers to so different?
2: They are very different. I actually uh, lived in France for three years as an engineer working in the telecoms industry, and uh, it was very clear the divisions that which she spoke about. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, the, the model of autonomy, I think you would agree, is something that we have had fortunately in the UK, and we should, you know, we must move to protect as much as possible. The borrowing to invest and the creating polls of excellence is something <laughs> that you, you might not be surprised to learn that I think is interesting in comparison. So they're investing 35 billion at a time when we're reducing our investment in, in r and D. am really afraid that the cuts in science spending are going to mean that our R&D is focused on a small number of universities.
0: When I was visiting her office there were some fantastic architectural graphics showing what these new campuses were going to look like with all this billions of investment and even if they do half of that it, it is going to sort of transform some of these sort of big city French campuses which hardly exist at the moment.
1: Clearly they do need to invest in capital but there is an enormous amount for them to do in order to achieve the pluri or multidisciplinary campuses that she's aspiring to. So I can see why the building programme is important because that will be a centrepiece for attracting people away from different institutions.
2: The fact that the French are spending so much money, if you like, to try and catch up with the UK should make us even more aware of what we have in order to protect it. Thank you.
0: Finally, we are resuming our relationship with AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and its flagship journal, Science. They'll contribute a segment to our podcast every month or so. So, over now to Nadia Ramligan in Washington.
4: Thanks, Clive. Ever wonder what life was like in prehistoric India? A paper published in the latest issue of Science shows that early humans used large stone cutting tools in India more than a million years ago. The findings provide the first evidence that humans were living on the Indian continent much earlier than previously thought. Archaeologist Shanti Papu from the Sharma Center for Heritage Education in India spearheaded the effort to date the more than 3,500 artifacts recently excavated from one of the richest Paleolithic sites in Tamil Nadu, India. Dr. Papu, what do these cutting tools look like and what did early humans use them for?
5: Ashulian hominins were extremely skilled at shaping large stone flakes and cobbles into tools mostly which we term hand axes and cleavers. They also made a whole lot of other tools on large and small flakes and cobbles. And these tools were used for specific purposes associated with exploiting plant material resources like digging up roots and tubers and butchering and skinning large game. So we know that
4: Acheulean tools originated in Africa, but they are thought to have spread throughout Eurasia, now the continents of Europe and Asia. Do your findings tell us anything about early human migration from Africa to Eurasia?
5: The earliest dates for the Acheulean and uh, related fossils are largely from Africa. However, our dates show that Acheulean technology was known in India from more than a million years ago, now contemporary with some of these sites in Africa and Southwest Asia, and uh, older than what was previously widely expected. And we can reasonably expect that many other Acheulean sites in India uh, could be much older. And these findings will contribute towards uh, modifying existing theories on the timing and nature of these dispersals out of Africa and across Eurasia. You proved that these artifacts were over a million years old. How do you
4: determine the age of stone?
5: We used two dating techniques at this site. Firstly, paleomagnetic measurements, which we used to date the sediments from our trenches, and this measures reversals in the Earth's magnetic field over a very long period of time. We also used another dating method for the first time in Indian archaeology, which is called cosmogenic nuclear burial dating, by which we could date the stone tools themselves, some of them, and this is based on the decay of isotopes of aluminum and beryllium in the raw material used for making these tools.
4: What other kinds of information do you hope to glean about prehistoric India from the dating of these artifacts?
5: These dates have helped us give a uh, overall time frame within which we can view the Indian Acheulean, at least the earlier phases. And this, along with studies of the excavated artifacts from our trench their technology, the past environments at this site, and many other factors from our excavations all will help in building up a story of prehistoric behavior in relation to past climate change, climatic changes for these early hominin groups in South Asia. And what is important is that they also enable us now to provide a time frame for comparing these assemblages with those at sites other, in other parts of the world.
4: That's archaeologist Shanti Papu from the Sharma Center for Heritage Education. For Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Back to you, Clive.
0: Thanks, Nadia, and thanks again to AAAS and science. I think people are fascinated by human origins research. It's one of the things that might draw young people into science. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. All that's left for me now is to thank my studio guests, Diana Garnum and Chi Onwura. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.